we're going to be in Luke chapter 5 to start today. We're going to work our way quickly through a handful of chapters in the book of Luke uh, because we're trying to zone in, hone in on what prayer is from Jesus' perspective. Um, I want to step back a little bit and just let you guys know that the feedback that I got from the first four weeks of this prayer series uh, has helped kind of shape and steer and change the direction that we're going to go with today and the remaining three weeks after today. We are basically at the halfway point now. I think we're going to wrap this thing up in a total of eight weeks focused on prayer. The wrong assumption that I made when I came into this series, when I started getting my notes together and preparing to, to preach these messages, was that most of us probably had some kind of prayer life, that we had rhythms in our life of praying already, that we knew how to pray for other people in different circumstances, that we maybe had even experimented with different kinds of prayer that have been passed down to us through church tradition, uh, not in an unkind way at all, but experience has taught me in the last month and a half that I don't think that's actually the case. And so what I did that was maybe not so helpful to you, and I'm trying to legitimize your experience if you would say that this is how it's been for you for the last few weeks, is I tried to offer perspectives that would tweak and change and maybe just edit practices that were already in place for us. And I think instead, we actually probably need to go even more foundational, even more fundamental than that, and work on establishing some of those practices and defining not just what prayer could be, but working through the steps of how you do it if you don't know how and nobody's ever taught you. So to that end, you can kind of think of today's teaching as a little bit of a reboot. I'm not walking back any of the stuff that I've said the previous four messages. I, I stand by those points. I think the Bible teaches those things, and I hope that they've been helpful to you. But we're going to go very, very, very basic today, and we're going to start with Jesus and I think that's going to be good for us because I believe that spiritual transformation is possible for you and I. I think that we actually can begin to embrace prayer as a practice. In a few minutes, I'm going to tell you why it has to be a practice uniquely for our generation and all of human history. But I think if we can begin to do that, to plug in and participate in prayer as a practice, then we stand a very good chance of finding something new, finding a new depth of meaning and interaction between us and God as we come to him and communicate with him. So that brings us to Luke 5. Uh, this is a story from the life of Jesus of Nazareth. For the sake of context, in the verses right before where we're going to read today, Jesus has just reached out and touched a leper. And in Jesus' day, a leper was a person who couldn't be healed and shouldn't be touched because everybody believed that leprosy was highly contagious. We know now that it's not, but that was the understanding then. And so for Jesus to touch somebody on the skin and heal them not only communicates that he's God, that he can do the healing, but that his intention, that his heart toward people is one of compassion. That he's not so afraid of the mess in their life that he won't reach out and get involved. And so Jesus shocks everybody who's present, and then he tells the leper, don't tell anybody about this. And that's kind of interesting, but we looked at this story when we were in Mark a couple of months ago, and the idea is that Jesus had not yet arrived at the time when he was going to die, and so he didn't need the word to go out everywhere because he knew that people in the religious establishment would hate him and would eventually kill him if they found out what he'd been doing. So he told the leper, don't talk, and then if you'll look at Luke 5.15, we'll find out what happens instead of what Jesus said. But the news about Jesus spread even more. So there you go. Apparently the leper didn't keep his mouth shut and neither did anybody else who was there that day in the city market when the man was healed. Large crowds were gathering together to hear Jesus, to hear what he was teaching, and to be healed of their illnesses. So don't miss that both things are happening together. It's not just this line of people who want to get something from God. There's also something about Jesus' teaching that's really compelling and interesting to people. Yet Jesus himself frequently withdrew to a desolate place and prayed. So frequently, from Luke's perspective, Jesus left big groups of people who had real ministry needs and went away to be alone with the Father and to pray. 
If you're in your Bible, look at the next chapter, Luke chapter 6. This is verse 12, another comment from Luke, the disciple, about Jesus' prayer practice. He says, now it was during this time that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and there he spent all night in prayer to God. If you go three chapters to the right in the book of Luke, to chapter 9, verse 18, Luke recalls that once when Jesus was praying by himself and his disciples were nearby, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? So Luke is remembering a time again where Jesus went away by himself. The disciples are near enough that he can come get them, but not right on top of him like they usually were. And he comes out of that prayer time and asks them a question. And then in Luke chapter 9, verse 28, uh, Luke recalls that about eight days after Jesus did the teaching right before this verse, Jesus took Peter, John, and James and went up the mountain to pray. Again, he took three disciples with him this time. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became very bright, a brilliant white, almost as if light was kind of coming out of his body and out of his skin and out of his clothes. Verse 34 of Luke 9, if you skip down just a little bit, Luke recalls that as Jesus was speaking, a cloud came and overshadowed them on the mountain. And they were afraid as the cloud came over them as they entered into the cloud. And then a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And then finally in Luke 11, which is where we're going to stay today, a couple chapters more to the right in the book of Luke. In verse 1, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he stopped, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, or Rabbi, teacher, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Here's my kind of introductory thought for you today. Prayer was central to Jesus' life. And I think because Jesus spent so much of his time praying alone, it's challenging for the authors of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to give us much detail because they really weren't there very often. In fact, one of the only times of two that all the Gospels mention explicitly that Jesus invited his disciples along, he transformed into what appeared to be a different being. Two dead prophets showed up and God spoke. So it probably wasn't like a really easy environment for the disciples to just hang out. Like, oh yeah, every time we pray, dead prophets show up too and God speaks to us. No, this was like very jarring to the point that decades later in one of Peter's letters to the church, he recalls this moment and says it was life-changing for him. That he, like, <laughs> he was never the same after experiencing that. The only other time that we know where Jesus invited his disciples into prayer with him, they all fell asleep and didn't pray. So maybe that's your prayer life, and if so, then you're in good company, okay? We'll all start there together, and we'll figure out where to move on from here. What I want you to understand is if Jesus is the model for the life of the Christian, and I've done a lot of work in the last couple of years to try to convince you that that's the case. I think that's the story the Bible tells. If that's true, if Jesus is the model for the life of the Christian, then the way that he prays and the frequency with which he prays and the places he goes to in order to pray, those are all a model for us. Those are not things that are unique to Jesus because he is divine in nature. Those are not things where we're supposed to look at him and go, well, sure, he could go all night and pray and not sleep. He's God. He doesn't really need sleep. Well, he's also a man in a physical body that absolutely does need rest. But there were times where prayer was more important to him than getting a full night's rest. I'm not prescribing that to you seven days a week, but I want you to notice that that's a part of the way that Jesus approaches prayer. Communication between Jesus' eternal spirit and the eternal living God. That's kind of the way we've defined prayer in this series. It was central to his life. Jesus retreated from long, full days of healing, of healing people, ministering to the broken, to pray, not just to rest, but to speak to God, to decompress and to realign himself with the Father. At least as Luke remembers it, Jesus did this frequently. Sometimes when Jesus prayed, it lasted all night, right? Sometimes Jesus counted prayer as more important than sleep. Sometimes he prayed near his friends. Other times he went away from everyone else to speak to the Father. And if I can be totally honest with you, my prayer life 
doesn't really look like that. And maybe yours does, but mine doesn't. And I don't think I know anybody, at least anybody who has shown me this, who's had prayer kind of invade moments where we're at lunch or we're at coffee or we're in a meeting or we're on the phone, to, to where it seems like this is really happening for many of us. At times, uh, for me, even when I've been on different kinds of like what we would call Christian highs, like the high points in our Christian life, like after a retreat or a summer camp, maybe when I was a teenager, I would have told you in those moments that I was ready to make a change, that I was going to plan my life, set the rhythms of my life, my week and my month and my year around prayer. Everything was going to be different for me. But if you had caught up with me three or four days later, for the most part, every single time, I would be back to just good intentions and very little action. And if I had to bet money, I would bet that that's probably been true for most of us as well, that we want it, we're not against it, we're not afraid of it, but we don't know how, and we've never seen anybody do it. And frankly, the, the gap that exists between Jesus' example and our normal interaction with prayer, it feels pretty huge. It feels so big that one book, one study, one Bible verse, one prayer time with a, with a person who does have a rhythm of prayer doesn't feel like it's going to be enough to cross that gap, to, to bring us close enough to God that we can be consistent. I think this is for a reason. So I want to throw you a bone here a little bit. Uh, in a way, what I'm going to tell you next may be devastating. At the same time, I think it'll be a little bit comforting because you'll know that you're not crazy. But from my perspective and from what I have read in church history, I feel confident that it has never been harder to pray ever in human history than it is right now for you and I. There are barriers that exist for us that are unique within the last 15 years of humanity that have never, ever existed before they do now. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think the most important, the most significant factor in play for us is that we have no margin at all in our lives anymore. None. We've reached the point where if we want to do anything extra or unplanned, it begins to cut into our sleep. That's how you know you don't have any margin, is you have to start going, well, how many hours of sleep could I lose in order to make this thing happen, to make this phone call, to take that person to the hospital, to run over and check on my grandmother, to catch up on email? We start to trim our nights down smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and we begin to medicate to go to sleep, and then we medicate to wake back up, and then we medicate to stay awake with coffee nine times a day. I mean, we just, we've tried to kind of turn ourselves into cyborgs, because we don't have any room. We can't rest. We can't breathe. We can't afford to make a mistake because every other domino in our life will all fall as a result. We don't have any free time anymore. We're never bored. Have you noticed that about yourself? Your kids will tell you that they are, but they're not really the way that you were. You used to be so bored that you would like look at the clouds and make up a story about whether they were characters or not. When your kids are bored, they're waiting for a five-second YouTube ad to end. That's what boredom is to them. And if it's a YouTube ad for a, a toy they want, they're not even bored. Now they're engaged and they want you to buy it and maybe they grabbed your phone and did it online and you got mad and had to send it back to Amazon. I'm not saying that's necessarily ever happened to me, but it's a possibility. It could, it could have happened to somebody somewhere, okay? Here's why that matters. Prayer is hard because we have no margin. Here's what that means for you and me. The days of yesteryear, the good old days when people just naturally drifted into prayer are gone. It will never happen. Prayer is going to be work. And so you have a choice to make. If you don't want to do any work, but you would like to pray, I can't solve that problem for you. But if you're willing, because of what's on offer to you, from God to you, if you'll pray, if you're willing to try to do the work and embrace that, I can promise you that that work will bear fruit. Probably more fruit than any other work, any other effort that you could apply yourself to. Because when prayer gets right in your life, so many other things fall into place because you gain the ability to communicate with God. 
If you're missing that piece of the puzzle, good luck with all your other spiritual disciplines and your read a Bible in a year plan and your Bible study group that meets one weekday of the the week. Like Those are fine things, but if you can't talk to God and you can't hear from God, you're just not going to go very far because the whole Christian thing is about knowing God and being near to him. It's not about how much information you can retain. It's not about how good you can make yourself or how well-behaved your kids are going to be or whether or not your grandmother thinks you're doing the Christian thing the right way so she quits sending you Bible verses every day. These are not the things that motivate and push us toward God. We have to want to be with him or the thing isn't going to pay off. It's not going to make sense for us. If I'm not convincing you yet, uh, in 2015, a little bit of data for you, there's a market research firm called Dynata who does research for like cell phone companies and people like that to track how effective ads are going to be. They surveyed 2,000 American adults, which is a very small sample size, okay, but here's what they found. They found that on average in 2015, so eight years ago, if you can think about where you were and what version of the iPhone you had back then, okay, eight years ago, on average, people were checking their phones about 96 times a day. And that sounds really high until you start to track this thing in your own life, and then you're like, that would be awesome. If I was stopping at 96, that gets me to about 10 a.m., okay? That would be great if the rest of my hours in the day I was uh, free from the, the tyranny of my cell phone. If you break that down, assuming that you're awake 16 hours a day, if you're getting eight hours of sleep at night, which isn't an assumption we can really safely make anymore, that means once every 10 minutes you're flicking your phone open, or you're, you, know, you remember the old way, you had to do the lock thing, and, then so, and so you go to your apps and you check. You check social media, you answer the phone, you return a text, you return an email, you look up a thing on Amazon to see if it's cheaper than what you're looking at in the store. We just we interact with our phones constantly. That was eight years ago. Fast forward only four years to 2019. What's scary is we don't have data on 2023 or even 2022 yet. I don't really want to know the answer, but I can tell you about 2019. Okay, we can feel better about that since we don't live there anymore. Dynata surveyed another 2,000 American adults, and they found that the number had increased from 96 checks a day to 352 checks a day which is a change, again, if you're awake 16 hours a day, it's a change from every 10 minutes to every 2 minutes and 45 seconds, four times as often. This is why you're not bored. This is why you don't have any margin anymore. For the rest of human history, unless there's some global government someday that outlaws cell phones, which, yeah, right, that's not going to happen. For the rest of human history, nobody will ever not have something to do again. Just let that sit on you. There will always be something within four inches of wherever your hands are, right? It'll be, it's almost a, it's an appendage for most of us now. Within arm's reach, there will be something that we can grab, pick up, open, and be entertained, or be informed, or become anxious about, or be worried, or communicate, or schedule something, or check email, or pay a bill. It's, it's here to stay, okay? And, and if I'm not plowing the ground for you enough to convince you that this is insidious in nature, that it's not good for you spiritually and it's not good for your spiritual life, I want to show you a clip. In 2018, Bo Burnham, who's a comedian, did a discussion panel about social media at YouTube headquarters, which is really funny because when you hear him say what he's going to say, you're like, I bet the YouTube guys didn't really like that he was there that day. But he's on a panel with a couple of developmental psychologists, and I just want to show you a 90-second clip from that panel. So Kyle, if you don't mind, can you guys cue that up for us? They're coming for every second of your life. That, that's what these companies are coming to. This company as well. And it's not because anyone is bad. It's not because anyone in this company has evil plans or is trying to do this. They're not even doing it consciously. It's because these companies like Twitter and uh, YouTube and Instagram and everything, they went public and they went to shareholders. So they have to grow. Their entire models are based off of growth. They cannot stay stagnant. YouTube, uh, Twitter grossed four, five billion dollars last year. It is in the red. It is unprofitable. It has to get more of you. 
that could be the ceiling for a place like this. YouTube, the ceiling could be three hours of engagement. No matter how nice it's trying to be, it is all that they're trying to get more engagement from you. We, hey, Kyle. We used to colonize land. That was the thing you could expand into. Thank you. Do you know, is it buffering? Is that the issue? It is buffering? Okay. Will you just give it a second and give me a thumbs up when we're ready? I want people to really be able to hear what he's saying. He talks incredibly fast, uh, faster than me, and so I want to make sure we can kind of follow his lips. Will you let me know if you think that we're in a better spot in just a minute? Yes? And that's where money was to be made. We colonized the yeah. entire earth. Hmm. There was no other place for the businesses and capitalism to expand into, and then they realized human attention. Yeah, will you stop it for a second, please? Thank you. See if you can roll it back to the beginning and just let it sit for a minute. Um, if it doesn't work, what are you saying? No, Caleb, it's not gonna work? Do you know what the issue is? Oh, it worked when we rehearsed this, right? When we did practice? Is that why? Is there a way to stop that for a second so we can watch this or not? Do you know? And uh, Yeah, we don't wanna do that, okay. Uh, if we killed the video, would that make a difference or muted the audio or not? Okay, that's fine then. Don't worry about it. I'll tell you what he says because I've watched this like a hundred times this week. <laughs> Truly. And I'm, it's bad news and if you were having a great day, I'm really sorry because this is not, not going to make you feel better. Um, his point is this and I think it's really relevant. That previously in human history, we colonized land and then we ran out of land. We colonized all the land. Like new organizations and, and the Industrial Revolution and monarchies and big giant armies, like we spread out everywhere there was, we conquered anybody that we could, and there's not an inch of land that's usable left anywhere. And so the new frontier, when it comes to these aggressive companies that have to grow because they went public, that's the point he's making. They can't just make money, they have to make enough money that their shareholders make money. Uh, he did this interview in 2018. In 2017, the year before, Twitter made $4 billion and was still in the red because of the model of growth that these companies are using that are public with shareholders. So no longer are companies like this trying to colonize land, they're colonizing our minds. That's the new frontier. Your attention, your ability to be targeted for ads that can be sold for revenue, that is the one thing that motivates every company that has built every app on your cell phone, including the phone itself. Now, I'm not here to try to convince you to get rid of that thing. What I want you to understand is this is a new and unique barrier in all of human history, and it's not going away. So if your hope is that eventually you'll be less busy, eventually your phone will ring less, according to the data I just read you, in four years, we multiplied it times four. So it's probably worse now than it's ever been, and I don't think it's leaving. We have to find a different way to get engaged with prayer than to sit around and wait for it to come to us. It's not going to happen. Coming to church on Sunday isn't going to change your prayer life the way that it used to. Choosing to go to a life group is not by itself going to change the way that you interact with prayer. It can't, no matter how good your intentions are, until you have disciplined time and space into your life that you refuse to give over to all of the digital things that want and feel like they need your attention. Until you can make that choice, you don't stand a chance. So if you think that prayer's not going that well for you, one, you're right, and that's a bummer, but two, you're right, and, and that means you're in good company. That means that we're going to have to do this together, that places like this local church are going to be, have to become the kind of place where you can meet people who are going a different way than the automatic thing that happens when you pick your phone up within 30 seconds of waking up and never set it down again until it either dies or you go to sleep. 
A little bit later in the same conversation, Bo Burnham makes a comment about how when we fall asleep at night now, we have this insane choice that we have to make. We have to choose between either all of the information in the entire history of human civilization or the back of our eyelids. What kind of choice is that? I mean, that's where you live in that world right now. It's not going away. We have to figure out what to do with it. Because if you go back even 20 or 30 years, there used to be these pockets of time all over our lives, interspersed in our days, in our weeks, in our months. There were natural rhythms. Your kids used to get out of school for Christmas break. You used to be off of work for maybe a week in that space as well. And there would be whole days where you guys would just sit by the fire. Not watch the fire on Netflix while you also play your Switch and listen to a podcast at the same time, okay? I'm not trying to pick on you. I'm also alive right now in this world. But we used to be able to be together, and that was helpful because that helped us know how to be with God, but we're hardly even together anymore. You realize that if you were to interview your great-great-grandparents, they would have no comprehension for what it feels like to live at the speed that you live. They can't process it. Like, you know there was a time when only executives carried briefcases. Like, you'll see this in movies. If you go back and watch movies in the 60s and 70s, most people who are going to work don't have a briefcase, don't have a backpack. There's no laptop to bring with them. They don't need a tablet. They don't have to have a phone charger. They don't have to have all Like, they didn't live that fast. They could walk to their building slowly, clock in, sit down at their computer. It would take a long time to log in. Or they worked with pen and a paper and a typewriter. Like, things were different back then. And they didn't bring that stuff home with them. There used to be hours in the day where people just walked around from place to place, and all they could hear was the sound of their feet in the dirt. That's it. Or maybe some birds or a breeze in the trees. There were whole days in human history where people would just move tools or materials from one part of their land to another part of their land. And that was it. No music in their ears, no political commentary, no Stephen King novel, not even any true crime. People used to have to read the newspaper to find out who got murdered, right? It didn't just come to them at 4 p.m. every Thursday with their favorite two peppy hosts that are going to let you know who stabbed their wife in the bathroom this week. Like, that's, we do this now. We're just consumed in it. We're immersed in stuff and information and ideas, and I don't even think we know how to know what's good for us. So should we be surprised when we come before God and we have no idea what to do or what it's supposed to feel like He doesn't seem like he's saying much back. Things aren't changing instantly right away. There's no button to press. I can't switch over to the next app. There's no notification when I've been away from God long enough. We have trained our brains to not be able to do it. And this matters. It matters because we have to make a choice, a hard choice, about whether or not we are willing to be disciplined. If you go back 20 or 30 years ago, human life used to be full of hundreds of tiny moments without meaning. Moments where there was no direction, there was no push, there was no impetus, there was no notification, there was no anxiety in a lot of those moments. These were gateways of potential into life with God. And they're gone. The gateways are gone. The age of moments is gone. We spend all day sliding the ends of our thumbs around on roughly 16 square inches of glass. That's our whole human existence in the most part now for us. And so what we lost when we gained all the information in the history of the world is we lost those moments. We lost the ability to just be And now we have to work to make time, to carve out and curate hours to be with God, even just minutes or seconds, to draw our attention onto what Jesus called the kingdom of God that is here. So what do we do? Do we give up? Well, some people have. Do we fake it? Is that good? Should we find a way to just score Christian points with other people who also aren't praying very much? That's kind of like terrible to think about and not something that I want to sign up for personally. Do we hope that just by coming to church on Sunday mornings, we'll eventually wake up one day with a new set of skills and motivation and desire and time to pray? That's not going to happen either. Prayer has to become a practice for us if we want to integrate it into our lives. And I'll now try to use your cell phone as a way to appeal to your ability to learn this. In the same way that you did not know what to do with your first smartphone. You had no idea how to navigate that thing. 
You kept butt dialing people, right? And you were embarrassed about that. Uh, you maybe accidentally bought $30 worth of apps because you didn't know it was just as easy as a swipe. Uh, or, and this is not something that happened to me, but I know somebody who did this, you maybe sent a picture of yourself in lingerie to somebody who had a really similar name to your husband, uh, but wasn't him. That happened when we were in Kentucky to an older gal uh, at our church there. Uh, you had to practice, right? You had to try again. You couldn't just say, the phone's not for me because I don't care to communicate with anybody, and I don't want to be able to see pictures of my grandkids, and I don't want to be able to FaceTime my family that lives 4,000 miles away. No, there was an appeal based on the relationship that you knew you could have that was enough incentive for you to keep trying. So you can do this. You were able to learn a new operating uh, an iOS, you, you, can, you do that every two or three years. There's updates to apps, and there's new stuff your phone can do, and there's a watch that goes with it now, and a brain implant that's coming for all of us. Like, you know how to do these things because you had to try, and prayer is as available as any other operating system that you've ever had to learn. You have the capacity to do this. You have the capacity to play the role of a person who cares about God and to believe it, to believe that it's true, to believe that he's present, to believe that he's available, and then to act on those things. So with all of that said, okay, prayer is central to God's life. It's not to ours, and it's not going to be until we choose to try really hard. With all of that said, let's look to Jesus in Luke 11, and let's learn from him. Jesus of Nazareth, the man who prayed all night. Who better to teach us? The man who prayed in front of other people, in the middle of his days, often alone in close personal contact with God. Luke 11, verse 2. Jesus answers the question that the disciple asks him in verse 1. And he says, when you pray, do this. Say, Father... May your name be honored and may your kingdom come and give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and do not lead us into temptation. Now this is one of the most recognizable and well-known passages of scripture probably in all of Christian history. Uh, People pray this thing in movies, football teams pray it in the end zone. Uh, It's just a part of our culture in a way that's kind of not that helpful I think it's so familiar that for many of us, it's almost impossible to interact with it, honestly and genuinely. I think of how, like, you know that your nose is always in your line of sight. Some of you didn't know that, but you don't see it, right? It's just there, but then you're kind of like, oh, yeah, you close one eye, and you're like, that is my nose. It's always there. No matter what I ever look at, there's my nose. This passage of Scripture is kind of like that. It's so close to our face that I think we almost can't see what it's trying to say to us. So I want to do this with you. I want to try to help you see your own nose, and I want to help you understand the meaning of what Jesus is doing in this prayer. So this is going to take us two weeks. We're going to get to two of the four fundamentals of prayer today, and then we're going to do the last two next week. So I hope you'll plan to be with us again next week. If you're taking notes, uh, you can write down that the first fundamental of prayer from Jesus' example is this, that God is your Father. you got to know that. This is critical for you. And maybe that seems like a common thought to you. Um, In Jesus' day, that was extremely uncommon. Nobody really called God Father. Nobody referred to him in a way that was familiar like that, in a way that was comfortable, in a way that seemed to want his influence and want his perspective. Before Jesus answered his disciples' request to teach them to pray in Luke 11, uh, even in the Bible, almost no one ever referred to the living God as quote-unquote Father. Now, some used his name, Yahweh, that he gave to Moses in the book of Exodus. Uh, Others referred to him as Jireh, Elohim, uh, Echyeh, Shaddai. These are all different names of God that come to us from the Hebrew Scriptures, but no one called him Father. And what we know is Jesus used some version of the Semitic word Abba when he referred to God as his father. Uh, Abba means father, basically, loosely. 
And I got to clarify for some of you, this is a bit of a side note, but I think it's important. Uh, this will be a disappointment for kind of two kinds of Christians, but the point needs to be made. Abba doesn't actually translate to the Father, which is oftentimes kind of how the more formal arm of Christianity wants to refer to God. Like, imagine that. Imagine ever telling your friends as a kid, you know, they invite you to the movies and you say, well, I'll have to check with the Father about that. They'd be like, you can't come to the movies. No, you need to stay. You need to stay away. You should move out of our town. We don't, wanna, we don't ever want to see you again. That's so weird, isn't it? And wooden. But it's like an example of the way that we tend to think of God as this impersonal force, not a person. Jesus simply said, Abba. He just said, Father. Now, the other end of the spectrum that's going to let some of you guys down is it also doesn't mean Daddy, which is like a thing that's kind of cringy and exists in Christianity. Maybe you picked that up at a college worship night in the mid-2000s. I don't know. But it actually just means Father. That's all it means. It means my dad who exists, who begat me and loves me and walks alongside me. And that's new for Jesus. Prior to Jesus' day and age, people thought of God as an Im- a distant, imperfect, or excuse me, impersonal force. That all he was there to do was to judge sin, or all he was there to do was to give laws, or all he was there to do was just kind of generally reign on the parade and help people having a good day, have a bad day. That's what most people thought of him. And here's Jesus saying to his disciples who were asking, how do we pray? And he's saying, you got to start by understanding that you're speaking to your father. So that shapes the whole rest of the thing. You're not talking to a distant, impersonal force. You're not talking to somebody who mostly wants to hurt you. And you're not talking to somebody who's so like you that they can't actually help you. That's kind of the third way that we tend to go when we visualize God. For many of us, we shrink God down so that he's just a slightly bigger human being in our heads. Maybe he's a little stronger than we are. Maybe he knows a little bit more than we do. But he's made of mostly the same things that we're made of. And over time, if we hold this idea of God in our head long enough, we begin to believe that he wants what we want, that he's for what we're for, that he thinks and acts exactly like we do. We might still call him God, or we might refer to him as Jesus or even Yahweh if we're into the Old Testament thing, but he will become an idol to us because he'll begin to represent our own self-sufficiency. In the same way that if you think that God is just a big, angry guy in the sky, you'll never want to pray. And if you ever do actually pray, you'll spend most of the time defending and justifying and explaining yourself to him so he doesn't hit you hard. In the same way that if you think that God is an impersonal force that's too far away to be any help to you or to get involved in your life, then you might pray in crisis, but you'll never pray out of familiarity. You'll only pray out of desperation. That if you've created this idol of God, this third way to misunderstand who he is, then you'll just talk to him about stuff that you want and you won't even really listen and you probably won't even go to his word. You'll just go, I asked God about that and I have a good feeling, so I think that's what he wants me to do. And he won't be a father to you because when you speak to your father, if you have a father who loves you, your father loves you enough to tell you the truth about yourself. Now, many of us don't have that because families are broken all over the place and that problem is only getting worse. But the ideal father, the model human father is present in our lives He's not the kind of good father that is always gone on business and just sends money home so you can have nice things. That's another way that we kind of interpret God in the Bible. He's the kind of father who has a bedroom down the hall from you and who's around, who you bump into in the kitchen and who is out there helping you change the oil in your car and giving you advice when a relationship goes bad and teaching you how to do your taxes and get a bank account and have a life. That's the role that God, your father, wants to play. And in Two weeks, we're going to dig down into this a little bit more. We're going to talk more about it. So if that feels hard for you to, to grasp and comprehend and grapple with, then just be patient. We're going to really tap what it means for God to be a good father. But that's the first fundamental. If that's not on your mind when you come before God in prayer, then you're not choosing to follow the example that Jesus gave. And that doesn't mean God's not going to hear you, and it doesn't mean you're a bad Christian, but it means you're missing something that's really valuable, that you would actually really enjoy and appreciate, that would heal you if you could accept what's true, that God is a loving father who cares for you. 
Tim Keller talks about acknowledging God as our Father in his book on prayer. It's called Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. He makes the point that God's fatherhood means that God is the safest possible person for us to reveal our inner life to, our secrets, our wants, our desires. His point is that when we cannot see God as a loving father, when we can't get there, then we're going to spend all of our time just building up our outer life, what you might call your persona or your reputation. And that's not a recipe for the good life. Listen to this quote from his book. He says, if we give priority to the outer life, then our inner life will be dark and scary. We will not know what to do with solitude. We will be deeply uncomfortable with self-examination. We will have an increasingly short attention span for any kind of reflection. Even more seriously, our lives will lack integrity. Outwardly, we will need to project confidence, spiritual and emotional health, and wholeness, while inwardly, we may be filled with self-doubts, anxieties, self-pity, and old grudges. How do we find our way out of that kind of life? Well, it starts with seeing God as our Father and welcoming the influence of a heavenly Father into our inner lives. This is the beginning of the good life, and according to Jesus, it is the beginning of prayer. Our second fundamental of prayer with Jesus is this, that your Father is within your reach. God is your Father, and he's right there. He's close to you. If you look at your Bible, which hopefully you have open, you'll see a footnote next to the word Father in probably any of the major English translations. I'm using the New English translation, but it's present in the ESV, CSB, NASB, NIV, all of the Vs. It's there, okay? There's a a footnote, and it tells you that in most manuscripts, including the majority of the later manuscripts that we have, the Greek phrase actually reads, Hemon ha entois uranus, which means our Father in heaven. It's the same way that this prayer is written in Matthew's account of how Jesus answered this question. So even though the words aren't there in Luke, that's still kind of the implied second line, so that's where we're going to draw out this second fundamental. The reason that matters is because when Jesus talked about heaven as a location for God or as a place that we might want to go or as a kingdom that's coming to earth, he was talking about something different from what most of us think of when we think of that word. We think of sort of like precious moments, babies playing harps in the sky. And what God is talking about, what Jesus is speaking about, is totally, totally different. He, he is using the same word, whether it's in Aramaic or Greek, that speaks about the sky or the air, but really what he means is the atmosphere. He's trying to get at a concept that Greek doesn't really have a word for, which is a lot of what the Bible is doing. It's trying to describe stuff that's so far outside of human experience that it's just getting as close as it can with limited human language. Jesus is trying to describe a very close by but still parallel dimension of being and life that is derived from the eternal reality of the living God. That sounds really, really complicated, okay? According to Jesus, this is what it means. The realm of life, the realm of being with God was as close as it had ever been when he arrived. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand or it's nearby or it's within reach. What he's saying is is that he brought it with him and along with him came the rule and the reign of God over everything that comes into contact with that realm with the kingdom of the atmosphere, this kind of unseen thing that we can interact with and know that we're a part of, but we can't experience with our five senses. And today's teaching is not a teaching about the metaphysical, supernatural, eternal existence of God or the ramifications on our existence of his preeminence or his centrality to all of creation, including the physics of time and space and matter and energy. Jesus knew all about that too, and God is still very involved in the maintenance of the universe that he built, but that's not my point. My point is this. If Jesus says that the Father is in heaven, that is not a statement about how far away he is. That is a statement about how close he is. And we misunderstand that. We think that our father in heaven means, our father in heaven, help! 
hey, can I get your attention for a second? And we're trying to beg him to pay attention to us. And he's not a part of most of our life, so we have to tell him about everything or else he won't know how to help us. It's very much us in the doctor's office feeling like we're running out of time and trying to get to everything that's wrong with our body. That's the way we pray. And Jesus is saying, your father is in the atmosphere. He's right here. He's around you. Okay, so if he's good, that's good news. If he's bad, that's bad news. That freaks us out. If we can't accept that first fundamental piece of the puzzle, that doesn't make us feel very good. But if he is a good father who's for us, then the fact that he's always right next to where we are is some of the best news that any of us could get. That we're not as alone as we feel. We can't be. That we're not dejected. We haven't been abandoned. God has not turned his back on us, and he isn't through at all. And that if we want to communicate with him, if we want to reach out and make meaningful contact with his spirit, it's as simple as just doing it. It's as easy as touching your shoe or grabbing your phone or picking up your jacket. He's that close to you. Your father is nearby. He's aware. It means he's listening when you speak. He's able to sense and share what you feel. He's deeply empathetic and compassionate for what is challenging and painful about your life. And he is holistically transformative. As you spend time and energy getting to know God and sharing your life with him, he will change you. He will change your mind and your body and your spirit. It's what happens to anybody who interacts with Jesus. It's what happens to everybody who interacts with God in the Old Testament. And it's still the way that God works. He wants to be involved in human life. And he has a plan for you. He is a good father. He's within your reach. And with that fundamental in place, we get permission from God to live our lives authentically. Because if he's far away, if heaven is 20 million light years out in space, then I can figure out how to clean my life up enough for the rare occasion that God swings close enough to me in the cosmos that he can see what's going on in my life. I can figure that out for a few moments, just like I kind of like take out my piercings and cover my tattoos and try not to cuss at Thanksgiving, right? It's the same idea if I have to see all these people who I don't really want to live life with and don't care that much about, but we share this family thing, so I have to go or maybe they'll kick me out of the will. If I can just get through that, that's kind of how we interact with church. It's how we interact with small groups. It's how we interact with the Bible. What Jesus is saying is that's not the case. He's not far away and distant and just swooping in for an inspection once a month and then he flies back out to go play harp and golf with naked babies in the sky. Like, that's not what it is. It's that he's incredibly close, he's always present, and when we tell him things, it's for our good that we speak to him. He doesn't need us to inform him. He doesn't need an update. He would be happy to get one if that's what we need to do, to share that with him. But he's right with us and he's good and we can trust him. We go where we go with him. An author named John Ortberg wrote a book about being our authentic selves, and in his book he says this. He says, the goal of prayer is to live all of my life and speak all of my words in the joyful awareness of the presence of God. Prayer becomes real when we grasp the reality and goodness of God's constant presence with the real me. He already knows. He's already close. Jesus, our example, lived his everyday life in conscious awareness of his Father. John is correct. Jesus, our rabbi, lived every moment in conscious awareness of his Father. And you can too. Because God is your Father, and he is within your reach. And he is available to you in the millions of tiny moments that you have been trained to give to the online world. He's ready to gently reclaim our digitally colonized hearts and minds and to transform us in Christ-likeness. So this week, as you remember his presence, as you turn your attention and your words toward him, toward his will, toward his way, may you find peace and comfort in his familiarity. May his proximity to your life speak some value to you that he cares enough to stay close by, to stick with you through thick and thin. And more importantly, my prayer for you is that you would know his love and his care and that the fact that he's right there close to you would give you something that maybe you never got from your parents, maybe you never got from your spouse, 
Maybe you're still trying to squeeze out of your kids to no avail a sense of value, of identity, of belonging that can ground you. Where you can just be because God is with you and you are with him. And that's the whole point. So may we be people who know our Father, who know that he is good, and who live like he is right here. Church, if you will, join me and let's ask God to make us into those kinds of people right now. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your work in our lives. I think sometimes when we say that, we sort of think of a list of like miracles maybe or, or we think of times that we didn't have enough money and you came through or people were sick and we needed you to heal. And, and those are real things. We are thankful for that, God. But maybe introduce to us today or, or, or confirm for us the idea that a lot of the work that you do is just being with us, being near to us, keeping us near to you, drawing us further into your presence that we would know you and become like you. God, we want to be the kinds of people on whom you have rubbed off. That with time and persistence and, and proximity, God, that we can be shaped and transformed into somebody different than who we are on our own. We don't want to have all the same problems that we have today when we die. We want to be different people. We want to know others. We want to get involved in what they need, love them, care for them, give them something of value. So, Father, would you make us that way? And for those who may be here today who aren't sure yet about you, about you, Jesus, and your work, about you, Spirit, and your work, about you, Father, and your plan, would this church be a place? Would you teach us as those who are following you and want to be your apprentices? Would this be a place where it's safe to have questions, God? Would you remind us that it's okay, that we've all been there, that mistakes happen, that none of us are perfect, all the way up to our elders, that we have to say sorry sometimes? And would you knit us together with that kind of humility? We love you, Father, and we trust you. Amen.